Hello and welcome to Casual Radio. This is your host, the Casual Morgan, Corey Adam, and my guest, as usual, it's Bob Scrivener. Bob's your uncle. How you doing, Mr. Morgan? The man. I am chilling out. Just had a sandwich. I'm good. Now you got fed, you're set. That's right. That's how we roll. That's how we do it. Fat boys gotta have food. That's right. So, I hear that a certain Bob Scrivener that we've been, uh promoting for a while finally got that article out that's right we finally got published we're on the fight the fight library the fight library yes sir the fight library it's an article about sumo wrestling nice nice so uh for anyone who doesn't know what that is why don't you give a brief description and discuss your article well sumo is a japanese sport it's basically a wrestling sport it's a combat sport of uh basically two men go into a circular ring Slap, they can grab, they can pull, they can elbow. Point is to make the other person either touch the ground with anything but the bottom of their feet or to push them out of the circle. It's a very old sport. There are records of it, basically the same as modern day sumo, all the way back until, you know, 1000 BC or 2000 BC. It's considered one of the oldest continuously run sports ever. No shit. And wasn't that a uh, thing of nobility back then? So no, actually, they were. What they did was it was it was a samurai sport, which technically is a slightly higher uh, rank. But back in the day, up until the Tokugawa era, which was around 1868, not 1868, sorry, up until about uh, 1600, commoners could become samurai. So it was actually technically open to everybody. But a lot of the time, the emperors would wrestle by proxy, and they would find the best wrestler that they could find, and they would wrestle for wrestle for the throne through their proxies, which is actually where a lot of the uh, a lot of the traditions that govern sumo to this day actually come from. Uh, for example, you you mentioned them as diapers, but they're called mawashi. They were a big, stiff canvas loincloth, basically. It's like a big old belt, but it also covers their junk. They can grab onto the belt and use that to help throw their opponents. What that actually comes from is there was a wrestler back in the day that was so good that he put on a cord around his waist and said anybody that could get a hold of this cord should consider themselves the winner, and nobody could ever do it. So that was where they started wearing that because they used to do just like they did in almost every other culture where they would wrestle nude, like in the Olympics and stuff like that. And the thing about sumo wrestling is, is it's a wrestling style that is similar to every other culture's cultural wrestling style where you're, you're, you start standing and you're trying to just throw the other person. Right. And wasn't there like penalties if you stepped outside the ring? If you step outside the ring, you lose. Damn, and those are some really big dudes in a really small circle. Very big. The average sumo wrestler as of 2010 was 5'11 and 333 pounds. So what you're telling me is if I gain a little more weight, I'm less than 200, so if I gain a little weight, I might be successful. Well, and you got to be, you know, about two feet taller, too. Oh, oh, shit. They don't allow step stools? Nope. (laughs) yeah i'm five seven i'd need a big fucking ladder to it's funny that you mention that because in my article uh it's called salt and sensibility check it out now on the fight library it's it's basically about two smaller guys uh sumo wrestling as you've mentioned is is usually for bigger guys and that's because if you look at strength athletics you see that they're bigger because having a bigger stomach both gives you a, a lower center of balance which helps you stay standing better but it also like if you're bigger your legs are naturally stronger so they tend to encourage them to, to get gained girth. They're pretty big, like I had said. 
Uh, but these two, the two men in this article are actually two of the smaller men to ever wrestle. Um, the one guy was about six foot and he was about 240 pounds, which is pretty big, but not in any way, comp- especially in that time when there were a lot of American wrestlers and Hawaiian wrestlers in sumo that were five, six, 650 pounds. So he was big, but not big for sumo. And the other guy was even smaller. In fact, he was so small that he wasn't even going to be allowed to join sumo. And he went to a doctor and paid him under the table to inject silicone into his scalp so he would meet the height requirement. Oh, shit. So he got like an injection, in, in permanent injection? Or like, did it just swell up temporarily? Was that permanent? I'm not sure if it was permanent or not. I know that it was done to be permanent, so they wouldn't check, but I'm guessing they, they pulled it out. But it was so dangerous because injecting pure silicone under your skin isn't healthy. They actually changed the rules because he had been an amateur champion. They changed the rules that if you were an amateur champion, they would waive the requirements and just let you in. So he ended up changing the way the way they operate just because of that, because of how good he was. So he basically got a boob job on top of his head. On top of his head, yep. God damn, that's dedication to your sport right there. And the thing about it is, is he wasn't even going to go pro. Uh, it mentioned, I mentioned in the article that he got his degree from college. He had went to college. He was an, a college champion and was planning on becoming, I think it was a teacher. A good friend of his who wanted to be a sumo wrestler passed away. And he decided to put his career on hold to go into sumo kind of in honor of this friend of his and ended up becoming ended up becoming one of the most famous sumo wrestlers of all time just because of his size and his kind of crazy style because he's tiny five foot six and 210 pounds isn't that big in america in japan in sumo wrestling it was i mean he was a shrimp 650 pounds though man they make tv shows about people that nowadays oh for sure and the thing about it is is he actually beat a lot the two biggest wrestlers uh, that were not japanese both wrestled in that time period uh konashiki the dump truck and he was 680 pounds and then Ake Bono, who was six foot eight and over five hundred pounds. Both of these guys were American Samoan, and he beat both of those guys regularly. And he was, I mean, and this was just how good he was. His nickname mentioned in the article is the Department Store of Techniques, because he did so many of these wild techniques that a couple of the techniques actually that he used to defeat these giants hadn't been seen since the 1700s, and the only other time they were used was in 2019, and it was another small guy. Another little guy ended up using this technique to win. So they're very rare. Uh, He ended up making his way all the way to Komusubi, which is the fourth highest rank, which when you retire from sumo, you retire at your highest rank, and that is what your pension is based off of. So when he retired, he retired as, you know, the fourth highest rank. So he's probably making, to this day, he probably makes five or six grand a month just off of that. Not counting the fact that he's now a TV personality. None of the rest of it. Just just extra money for having gotten that far. No shit. Wait, so he's still living? Oh, yeah. Yeah, this was in, that guy retired in 1999. The other guy retired in 2002. Oh, shit, I didn't realize it was this recent. Yeah, most of Mayanaumi, which is the department store of Technique guy, the really little guy, his best matches happened in the mid-90s. The other guy, Terrio, the Eternal Typhoon, he wrestled at the top division from 1979 to 2002. He never missed a tournament, never missed a match, and he made it all the way to the third highest rank, uh, Sekawaki which both he and him and his brother were the first two brothers to ever do it at the same time. His dad had been that. Like, he was kind of part of it. He was almost sumo royalty just because of his family and how long his family had been in sumo. 
heritage yeah for sure and uh he was also and the thing about it is it's like i had said he's a small guy especially back in that time sumo is a lot different now than it used to be but the little guys were slappers they would slap you and try to keep you from grabbing a hold of their belt and then whenever you would push back they would slap you down or they would move to the side and shove you out and terrio even though stylistically he was a slapper he was actually really good on the belt and he was good with throws and good with technical stuff too because Again, he grew up in the sport, so I mean, him and his brother were doing this from the time they could walk. So even though he didn't use the belt skills a lot, he still used them. And actually, his most famous win was against uh, one of the greatest grand champions of all time, Chiona Fuji. Uh, that video is actually linked into the article. He used belt skills to beat the, to beat him. He slapped him a few times and then grabbed his belt and threw him. Even though there, you know, there's a lot of stylistic difference. There's a lot of stuff that. A lot of stuff that you would see today, too, and especially with the smaller guys, because the smaller guys tend to be on the belt now. So, do they have a weight class similar to modern fighting, like American-style fighting, stuff like that? It had a weight class? Not at all. You fought So, it was just fuck around, find out. Yep, and the thing about it is, too, is that not only were there no weight classes, but there are a lot of things about sumo that are really regressive. Uh, The injury situation is really regressive. If you get hurt and you sit out, they make it like you've lost all of your matches. There's no, oh, I'm hurt, I'm going to take a few weeks off. It's, if you're hurt, you've lost, and you're going to get demoted. And when you get demoted, you lose money. You lose sponsorships. You You lose your status. If you get all the way to almost the top level, and you get hurt, and you have to take two years off, you move out of your apartment back into the gym. You leave your wife at home, and you come back, and you go back to, to cooking food and cleaning the cleaning the toilets. So what you're saying is these guys, it was not a sport as much as it was a fucking way of life. It's absolutely a way of life. A lot of these guys get into it. There, there are multiple avenues to get in, but a lot of the guys come in at, in, in junior high. They get recruited, and they start at these lowest levels as as children. You fight who you fight regardless of what their age is, what their size is, how long they've been in sumo, what their situation is. You fight them regardless. So if you imagine, say, right now, one of the Yokozuna had gotten hurt. He blew out both of his knees, and he went from the, the second highest rank all the way down to the second lowest rank, which was further than when he started. Because when you uh, become a champion as an amateur, you get to start at a higher level. He went further down than he had started originally and came all the way back up and became a Yokozuna. Imagine going, imagine being a 15-year-old and coming into sumo and having to fight a guy that's working his way back up to the highest rank ever because of injuries. Damn. Imagine being a fucking high school football player as a freshman and playing against Tom Brady because Tom Brady got hurt and had to take a few years off. That's basically what it's like. And then he comes back ready to slap the shit out of you. And and that's exactly what he did. And it was he he carved a swath the likes of which has never been seen. It's the biggest comeback ever. It's the furthest journey to Yokozuna ever. Like he broke something like sixteen records on his way these last three years to make his way to Yokozuna. It's insane. Holy shit. Now for someone like me, break down what the levels are. Simplistically, what's the bottom? What's the top? Okay, so if you think of sumo as a pyramid, all right, there are two top levels and they make money. Two salaried levels at the very top. Underneath of that, there are five other levels and each one of those levels is numbered. There's about 10,000 sumo wrestlers total. Holy shit. There is 70 that make a salary. Wait, 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 run that by me again. 
about 10,000 wrestlers, about 70 actually make money. Holy crap. So then you get, they're the top two levels. That It's called Secatory, which they get, they have a special sash that they wear in their belt that shows that they're salaried, that they make money, that they're the elite. And again, once you retire, you retire at your highest rank. If you retire and you never made a salary, you don't have a pension. You don't get paid anything. Well, there's some incentive. Right. So you go, uh, the first Secatory rank is Jurio. Jurio is the, the second highest, and th- that is all numbered. It's Jurio 18 to Jurio 1. And you, you, have, you fight 15 matches over 15 days. If you get a winning record, your record goes up. If you have a losing record, your record goes down. And then you go from Jurio to Makauchi, which is the highest rank. Makauchi has their, their lowest rank is Megashira, and Megashira is numbered. And Megashira is the only rank that's actually kind of elastic. Sometimes there's 18 on each side, sometimes there's 16, sometimes there's 15. It just depends on who's hurt, how many people they have to get in, because there, there, there are certain things you do that have to get you into that rank. So, Megashira. Once you get past Megashira, you go to the Sanyaku ranks, which are titled. They're basically junior champion, local champion, champion, and grand champion. You go from Megashira to Komasubi, and from Komasubi, you go to Sekawaki. Sekawaki is the third highest rank. Sekawaki is the, the highest rank you can get if you just have winning record. Okay, so that's no losses. No, not, not no losses. You just have more wins than losses. Okay, got it. I'm tracking. If you have eight, eight wins and seven losses, you go up. From Sekawaki, you have to have 33 wins over three tournaments. Okay. So that's, you know, 11 wins a tournament, which is pretty good. Once you get that, you become an Ozeki, which is, it means champion. An Ozeki gets to keep his rank unless he has a losing record, and then he has one tournament to get a winning record or he loses it. There, there are some special rules with Ozeki. But from Ozeki, if you win two straight tournaments, you become a Yokozuna. That's grand champion. That's the highest of the high. You can't ever lose that rank. Once you've gotten there, you either compete or you retire. Every other rank can be lost. Yokozuna is the only one that you never lose. That's a hell of an ass whoop, and once you get that, it's almost worth it to just be like and bounce. Well, and you've got to figure, too, uh, recently the last Japanese Yokozuna actually tore his pectoral muscle getting his title and never completed another tournament after that. And when he retired, they paid out his retirement bonus. He made $2 million to retire plus his uh, longevity bonus because they give you a bonus for each tournament you fight in the, in the salaried ranks. A bunch of other records. I think I calculated that he makes something like twenty-five grand a month right now. Not counting, he's also a coach. So his retirement just pays out twenty-five grand a month. A month. Look, I need to go to Creckles, Custard Castle. I need to up my game. Exactly, and that's and you got to figure too. Like that, that guy slaved away from teenager all the way to Yokozuna. That guy dealt with that for years, and like I said, they can't take time off for injuries, and they can't take time off from training. They're in there every day, regardless. So it's it's a hard life. It really is a hard life. Now, is it a seasonal, like a lot of our sports are? They have a tournament, a grand tournament, every other month. They have six a year, right? So January, March, May, July, September, November. Those are your grand tournaments. Those are the ones that get the biggest money, and then each in between month, they do regional tours where they go to different areas of Japan or sometimes they leave Japan. There was a, there actually was a tournament in London in the early 90s, but usually they're in Japan. They go to regional places. They kind of recruit people and they put on a two-day knockout tournament 
in between in front of um, they put they, they put those on in between the major tournaments and that's kind of how they recruit new people and you also get money for winning those like those are also you know there's a reason to fight those but they don't they don't go on your record they're just kind of to be done they're just paid events yeah like people just pay to watch them and then like I said they they recruit junior high wrestlers or high school wrestlers or college wrestlers they they kind of give them a taste of what the life is like and if they want in they let you know they they work their way in Son of a bitch. A 15-year-old going against a 650-pound man. And you got to figure, in the last 20 years, there have been three deaths that we know of from hazing in sumo. Just through hazing. Yeah, that's fucked up. There have been, there's a lot of scandal going on. Even right now, there's a big gambling scandal going on right now. They've had, they've, they've had kind of their ups and downs. They actually, at this point, are probably more popular overseas than they've ever been, but in Japan, their popularity is kind of waning a bit because A, most of the top division wrestlers are foreigners, and B, there have been so many scandals that they don't feel like they can trust the Sumo Association. So there's actually, it's actually been kind of a, a withdrawal period for Sumo, but it's starting to come back up a little bit just because of how exciting everything has been over the last, you know, two or three years. There's been a lot of craziness going on. So, And that's like every other sport, unfortunately. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's just a bigger deal in Japan because of the amount of organized crime that they have involved in things like gambling, in things like, you know, the sex trade, and things like that. And that's a lot of what they end up getting caught up in. I don't understand throwing away these multi-million dollar careers over stupid shit. I, I never understood that. Why you would throw those careers away. It's a cultural thing, I think, for a lot of them. Because if you if you remember during the tsunami that... I forget, was Tsukushima, I think it was, the nuclear reactor that had the tsunami that happened around it. Right, the mobs were paying for everything. The, the mobs, were the, the Yakuza were the ones that were evacuating people and paying for people to have somewhere to stay, and they did the same thing during the Kyoto earthquakes in the late 90s. The government wasn't doing shit, so the Yakuza paid for helicopters to evacuate people and put them up in homes to help them. Yeah, I remember that. There's a lot of cultural things with the Yakuza and with Japan, and they've, they've actually managed to get rid of a lot of that, but it's never going to go away totally just because, again, I mean, the Yakuza was designed as a mutual protection thing for the, the, the lower class because the governments didn't give a shit about the peasants, and the peasants said, well, we're going to take care of ourselves. Right, look out for the little guys. I'm not a uh, major or history guy for Japan. Like, I'm... I- I don't, I'm not saying I'm against their history. I'm saying I'm not as educated in their history. But one thing I always did admire was like their samurai, their stories. Like when these people get dedicated to something, there is nothing else but the highest achievement they can get for that. And it's, it's their entire life. It's generations. You don't see that very often. Well, and the thing about it is, is, is a lot of that is mythological from World War II, they used that to convince people to be kamikaze pilots. They said, oh, you must be samurai, you know, to the death. That's not actually historically how a lot of that happened. They say it was, and it's the same way as like the knight in shining armor thing. You can look at that today and say, that's bullshit. It's kind of the same way with the samurai legend. There are examples of that, but there are just as many examples of somebody going against the grain. Miyamoto Musashi, who's one of my favorite historical figures, uh, is actually one of Japan's favorite historical figures because he was a guy that he was a lower ranking samurai that kind of did his own thing. And people really love that because in Japan, culturally, they're like, you just kind of got to go with the flow and you do what you're told and the superior tells you what to do and you tell your inferior what to do. And he kind of 
pulled himself outside of that in a lot of ways. And that was, that was one of the reasons why he's so famous. Yeah. There's a lot of, there, there's a lot of contradiction in Japanese society from what I've read. Obviously I'm not Japanese, but from what I've read, from what I've seen, I'm a big, um, a big fan of a lot of Japanese books, Japanese stories, Japanese manga, Japanese anime, and a lot of the stuff that's historically based. It's really interesting to read and see the differences in, in between what we think of as historical Japanese and the reality. That's true. I mean, there's always historical inaccuracies. Plus, I mean, as my history teacher broke it down when I was real young, is that history is his story. It's a story written by the victor. So there's always going to be inaccuracies, embellishment. There's always going to be stuff like that. And sometimes you're using that as a don't fuck with me because, and here's a list of reasons why you shouldn't mess with us. Oh, exactly. I, I get that. But still, samurais have that history of being straight noble as fuck no matter what. And I always thought that was pretty cool. It is interesting, that's for sure. I mean, we, we see that today where people say, oh, the South will rise again, and that kind of stuff. So, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying. How many that you're aware of, how many have been undefeated since the start of this until now? Never. Never a single undefeated Never. champion. No, it's sumo. It, it's so short, and the matches, I mean, the matches happen in the space of less than 10 seconds. No shit. Yo, I've yeah. never seen one, so I have no idea. Yeah, well, you should read the article. It's got some videos on there. They're very quick. You will see sometimes the the really, really, really greats will have what's called a Zenshow You Show, which is an undefeated tournament, 15-0, and 0, and they get an extra bonus for that. It's pretty rare. The greatest of all time just retired last year, I think in November, and he had, over his career, he had won 46 tournaments, which is the most ever. All right, 46 over the course of his entire career. He had 10 Zensho Yusho, which is 15 win tournaments. Holy shit. And that's the most. He'd, he'd had 10 undefeated tournaments. Dude was a beast. Yep, and you got to figure six tournaments a year. He won 45. Most of his career he spent either losing or losing some. You know what I mean? He wasn't constantly winning. And he, again, the greatest of all time. Like, I don't like him, and I can say he's the greatest of all time. So, I mean, even the best spend a lot of time losing, and that's just, that's the way it is. And it's that, that's the way it is in any combat sport. Everybody, there's always somebody that's got your number. They may not be tougher, they may not be better, they may not be better, but they have a style that will get you. Everybody, everybody has somebody. Gladiators, man. That's right. Just like gladiators, no matter how badass they were, if they came back, there was always that chance someone was going to get that ass. But, I mean... Did you know even they back then had their own propaganda, they had their own signs, and I, I didn't realize that until someone had popped that up on Reddit, that back then even they had fucking advertising, advertisement, they had managers, and I'm like, no shit. You know what's really funny about that is I did some research a few years ago for uh, for another essay that I had written, and gladiators had a better survival rate than boxers do. No shit. Yeah, th there are something like 150 boxers a year die worldwide from boxing. Gladiators had a 95% a survival rate. They didn't actually fight to the death. It was pretty rare, actually. Oh, see, that's that bullshit. Oh, no, and they actually did. They did the same thing pro athletes do today where they uh, they advertised. They were There was a part that they cut from, from the Gladiator the movie where he was plugging some kind of drink or something, and they thought that it would look ridiculous, but that's what they did. See, I, I saw a little bit about that, but, man, I didn't realize their survival rate was. I mean... Everything you see and learn about it, it's like either you win or you, you're you dead in the story. 
But then again, the emperor always had a say in that matter too. The emperor could say, uh, "Nah, fuck this guy." Yeah, sometimes it just depended upon where you were at. Because if you if you look at where they found most of the gladiatorial arenas, none of them were in Rome. There were only two that were in Rome, and one of those was a was horse racing. They you were more likely to see a horse get killed for losing a race than you were to see a gladiator die. Much more likely. Although seeing lions rip someone apart would be kind of fucked up. That's also a myth. No shit. Oh, you're ruining it all yeah, for me. That's also a myth. That never happened. That was that was propaganda. <laughs> there goes my uh, wanting to go to Rome. Yeah. Shit, I want to go to Rome, but... Oh yeah, Rome would be fucking epic. For sure. Um, but yeah, check out uh, check out the new article. It's on the Fight Library. It's called Salt and Sensibility. Check it out today. Um, what else we got to plug this week, Mr. Worgen? So we are doing really good on our podcast. We jumped over 90 this weekend alone, so you can't go wrong with that. We are tearing up Instagram. We're doing good on Instagram. That's right. You guys are listening a lot, and we really appreciate it. Please don't hesitate to email us, contact us, let us know what you think, give us stuff to talk about, tell us how much we suck, make fun of us, tell us you want to come on the show. We'd love to talk to you guys. And if you want to make fun of Bob, Get a hold of me, I'll give you an entire episode just to shit talk this man for me. You know I gotta edit that episode, so uh... That's okay, I'll make my own and insert it. Boom! So, um, also, uh, pretty soon we've been doing alright with streaming, so we're gonna go ahead and do another Lauren Moore episode, this time on the Pandaren. My favorite. Right, they started out as a freaking prank and turned into amazing. Got their own expansion, they're a big deal, even got their own class. The Drunken Panda Monks. That's the only bit of WoW I've ever played, and I would really love to play again if I ever get the cash to, so yeah, check that. Check out those new streams. We're actually going to have, uh, we're going to be having an episode at some point talking about the streams and how they're going, so listen in for that. Don't forget Sunny's Specialties. Sunny's still Specialties. Still for hire. Yeah, check it out. Check them out. I'm actually, I've got a few projects on my own that are getting uh, getting sent in sometime soon. So check out Sunny Specialties. Contact us. Email us. We want to hear from you. And uh, I think that's it. That's right. Don't forget Casual Morgan. We are on Instagram. We are on Facebook. We are everywhere. Spotify, Apple. Check us out. And this is Casual Morgan. We are out. Bob's your uncle. 